Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, welcome to the 298th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is brought to you by patrons Derek Aiello and George VK, both at the $10 level, getting those hats, shout out. Derek, our old uh, social media maestro. Hey, Derek, right. thank you. Hey, thanks. Anyway, uh, I'm Matt Mo, And I'm Oren Kaplan, and today we have Alex Henry on the podcast. She is a director and producer. Matt and I have both worked with her as a producer, an agency producer. Hey, Matt, for our listeners that don't know what an agency producer is, can you give us a quick rundown? Yeah, so the agency producer is like most of the other producers that we tend to work with, but they are on the agency side. So when you've got your EPs and your creatives, your copywriters, art directors, all those people agency side, the agency producer is kind of their nuts and bolts person. The person who, you know, is kind of the liaison between the production company who we, we tend to work with and the the bridge to the, the the creatives over at the agency. So they tend to be a really strong ally for us. I really always love agency producers and they tend to be people who have a lot of experience in the freelancing world. So they, they, they're really the people at the agency who literally know what it takes to execute the creative that everyone has come up with together. And so uh, we talk about that a little bit more with Alex, if, if I recall. But yeah, I, I always have a fondness for agency producers and they're people that I, I try to develop a relationship with early because they can really be an advocate for the logistics that sometimes people tend to underestimate on the creative side. Yeah, they're the ones when the copywriters... So this is obviously specific to the commercial world, but if the copywriters write something like and then an elephant comes out of, you know, pokes his head through the window. We're the ones that say, we love that. We can do it. It can be a CG elephant that will cost 50 grand, or we can get a real elephant that'll be $35,000, but it might not do exactly right. what Scheduling we want. Scheduling may not be permitting for that. And you yeah, know. should we, all right, will you approve us for this extra money? But more importantly to me, the producer is the person that shows the creative team. And when we say creative team, we mean like the people that write the commercials, the copywriter, the art director, the creative directors, the, the John Ham or not the John Ham, the Don Drapers of the world. The producers are the ones that show them the reels of the directors. So the producers are the ones that are like, hey, we need some directors who let's let's find some options. And so that's why if we, you as a director are on a producer's radar, by the way, even if you've never directed a commercial, it makes it makes it pretty hard to get a commercial job but if you, if you know an agency producer they you know can show your short film your they they can pitch you as someone that should direct the commercial so they're great they're great people to know as directors and I actually 
I don't know that I have a lot of relationships with agency producers beyond Alex, actually. Do you? Yeah, you know, I, I think a handful. Like and, like I like, do on, on specific jobs, mm-hmm. but it's not like I'm like emailing them or like we're commenting on each other's images on Instagram. Right, 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 right. Yeah, I mean, to me, the thing that I love about an agency producer is just because they they typically come from our world, they're just so much easier to relate to. And I think as, as a director... I tend to relate to the crew more than I do the agency, just in terms of like, you know, they're a little bit more rough and tumble, a little bit more day player-y, a little bit more, you know... They the crew or they the The crew, yeah. First people there, last people gone. And so, like, I always have such a deep affection for the crew. And I love creatives as well, but it can be a little hard when said creatives don't understand what they're asking of our friends and peers you know what i mean and so agency producers tend to have a cruise back in a way that i think is really valuable and helpful but also have the creative in mind as well so like like directors they they kind of have to walk that line and i've always really appreciated that about them yeah that's why she's here actually to talk about a new documentary that she directed it's called street heroines it's about female graffiti artists all over the world she's been working on it for a really long time and if you go to her website alexandrahenry.com you can see the trailer you can see where you can watch it and everything and so it's you know we we talk about this a lot on the podcast but we have our passion projects and we have our money projects and she's a, a really great example of someone that really pushes hard in both of those things and i think something that's important is that your money projects don't have to be projects that you don't care about Mm -hmm. right to me it just is a project where you're not the boss right right Or, or just where you're getting paid right like ideally your your passion projects are your money projects but you know for i i you know the biggest directors we know still you know we'll do a, a commercial every once in a while that they're excited about that they're passionate about you have to get excited about things in order to win the job just the way way producers do as well but that you know that commercial for target is probably not your life story and so you know unless you're david Lachapelle or someone <laughs> sure yeah yeah but even even still um that's what i'm saying i think i'm saying even david Lachapelle. He gets to put his own spin on the Target commercial, but he's still doing it for a brand, and therefore he doesn't have full autonomy over the story and the imagery and the products that he's selling. And that that is a a walk that we have decided to take. Basically, yeah. I think you're really going to enjoy our talk with Alex and and some of the insights she gives us as to why an agency likes a director for a job. But before we get to that, I just want to get a quick status update from you, Matt. Uh, you know, I think we, I believe we have a, a wager going. Sure. Yeah, we do have do a wager going. you remember the details of that? That's, that's right. I think... Um, $25, $100, dollars $1, I forget what I, it I what think it was. it was 100 But honestly, the, the, um, the embarrassment is the, real, is the real stake in the game for me. But, but yeah, so for listeners who haven't been keeping track, Oren teased me about how I would, uh, it was unlikely that I would be able to shoot a feature this year because I just moved and had a baby and all sorts of other life challenges. Yeah, moved um, like, like into a new house that you own that you have to like take care of, which is mm-hmm. different and, than when you're renting a house and like there's a leak and you sure. just call yeah, yeah. the landlord. You, you just call your landlord and they, you know, it's a, it's a 
bummer. It's a burden, but it's not the same as spending a couple thousand bucks on patching or hole in a roof or yeah. whatever. And yeah. just I, just even less the money than thing than the time thing. Like you just you, you spend your weekends instead of like going to the coffee shop and like working on your script. You're like putting the baby to sleep and then figuring out how to mm-hmm. like fix this drafty window. Mm-hmm. You know. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. It's just a mental shift in like how much time you have for your art slash work versus your family slash living space you know and then somewhere in there you need to fit your money jobs as well so sure yeah yeah so i've been lucky that i've been making decent money the last um quarter in particular but uh and that kind of continues it looks like that's going to be okay for uh the foreseeable future which has been a, a pretty significant weight off my shoulders that I'm not hustling in quite the same way that I had been the first half of the last year or this year, I should say. And so I think, I think that if I was like doing that thing of like updating my website right now and like emailing people to be like, Hey, like, how's it going? Any prospects? Like let's catch up while things are slow. I think that that would be, which is what I typically have to do and will I'm sure do again, you know, not too far from now. Yeah, networking. Yeah, yeah, networking and just kind of like that that sort of hustle. I think not doing that currently and not sweating my mortgage currently, I think uh, have made things easier to accommodate the other parts of my life that are growing. And so uh, in terms of the movie, I you'll love this, Warren. So I, I the the external things, contracts, emailing with companies, getting on phone calls, scheduling phone calls, and then, then making those meetings. All of that stuff has gone relatively well. You know, it was, I was late for one meeting relatively recently that annoyed me because of, because of bath time. Um, and so, uh, of course, but, but more that it slipped my mind. I, it wasn't that I was running behind and knew it. It's that I lost track of time, which is unlike me. Yeah. But it does reinforce my premise that right. you are the type of father that is, uh, sure. going to be, at most bath times. Bath times. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All, But all of those external things have been relatively easy. And the thing that is challenging is finding time to do a rewrite. So basically, currently, I'm in a trajectory where I owe a company that I'm working with who's going to be doing the uh, schedule and financial plan for the film. I owe them an updated draft because I have wanted to adjust the finale for some budgetary reasons and smooth out the first act uh, more for creative reasons, basically. So I owe them a draft before the holidays, basically, that can still be punched up, still be rewritten, all of that stuff, but needs to have more of the fundamentals locked in, basically, before they go into this budget. Because what you don't want to have happen for for people who aren't me, you know, you don't want to send someone a budget that doesn't accurately depict say for instance that you've got a five act set piece with 35 extras and all these vfx and all of that stuff at the end of your movie because they'll budget for that and then all of a sudden the movie's more expensive than maybe you're trying to aim for and we're i've I've got it set so that i've got kind of two different brackets based off of what sort of talent we're getting the a more lower budget version where i get to kind of be to cast more up and comers and people that I know and love and, and would be really excited by and still make a great movie. And then these maybe some more aspirational, bigger name talent, basically that would therefore pull in more money that I could then spend, you know, on trailers and junk like that. 
so so that's where we're at. So I, I owe a, a rewrite in that. That has been, uh, as I think literally everyone would have guessed, the the biggest challenge, you know, is, is making that time to, to do that stuff. What's funny is that like the decks and pitch materials and all of that stuff has been the stuff that's been front of mind, top of mind right now. And I think it's partially because that's the thing that we have been honing our skills at for the last five years. And so I keep thinking of new slides that I'm going to add and how I'm going to Photoshop this image to make it a little bit better. And also in terms of pitch materials, I have kind of like one big lookbook that I'm really splitting into two separate documents now. One of which is more purely artistic is, is like a classic lookbook. And then one that is more about the pitch materials of uh, the financial waterfall and the plan, how the budget works, marketing, the business of it all, uh, which will still be slick. I think it'll be slicker than business plans tend to be because of all of those aforementioned skills. It's still a hype material. And then the actual contract is the lawyery boring nuts and bolts sort of um document right well yeah that's you know i think as a director your job aside you know as a writer director aside from writing the script is to get people really excited about the project and that's the part where the more time you put into it usually the the easier that is you know the the more results you'll get out you'll talk to more people about it you'll create more materials for it whether it's a lookbook or whether it's you know some connection you have to an actor that you are following the the you know the path on to try to get them excited about it like all those things just take a lot of active effort with zero zero guarantee of return Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so yeah i mean i think that that's part of the reason why i have been so adamant about two separate budget structures is because it would be it would be so cool if i made this movie and we're talking about really like a, a SAG ultra or low budget contract, right? Versus, you know, a one million, two million dollar movie, right? So, so the range is is not not huge, frankly. We're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars difference, not millions of dollars in difference. But uh, it's important to me that I ha- have written a script and built a budget that is realistic for me to raise the cash without anyone's help. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I guess you've done it before. Yeah. So so that's, yeah, that's in your favor. Well, it's December 13th when we're recording this. That means we have 365 plus 18, 383 days for you to go make that movie. Yeah. I mean, so we will see. It will either come together very quickly and, um, you know, Carlin will be on the show a lot more and um, I'll be out in New Mexico or it'll be pulling teeth for the next you know, eight months, I hope. <laughs> is there is there an age that you would like your daughter to be before you leave for like this three-month I think she'd three come with project? me. Yeah, she'd come with me. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, so you wouldn't like, sleep at all during your entire <laughs> <laughs> She's been really good about sleep lately. Um, I'd love for her to be, and you tell me, there's like a sweet spot that I feel like I have observed in the like six or eight month window where they're not, they're super cute. They're alert. They can sit up straight. They're napping for consistent amounts of time, but they can't like run around and really do a lot of damage yet, you know? And I think that 
this is purely based off of when I've been able to have brunch with friends who have kids in the past. It always seems to be around that window. And look, inevitably, they start crying. They have to go change a diaper or like take a nap or whatever. It's not like they're just like little people who, you know, are awake during the day and asleep during the night. But uh, but that there's a there's a level of consistency that, you know, we'll be able to plan on. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I have not. Is that realistic or no? I'm asking your opinion here. Uh, I think seven months. That's how old my son is. Is uh, Mm -hmm. It's a challenge. I mean, they're all challenging for different reasons, but it's like an age where kids like are kind of turning into little humans and you can't just like Mm -hmm. put them down and like read something or. Yeah, we're we're noticing that even now. It's like, oh, if she's awake, she's bored unless we're not. Yeah, you need to entertain them. You need to walk them. They need you need to exercise them. You need like whatever all the all the brain stimulation. So that is like kind of a full time job. And yeah, at seven months, you're like kind of sleep training them. You're making sure you're putting them on a nap schedule. You're you're trying to get them to sleep through the whole night. You're you have a feed schedule. They're eating solid foods and milk. Still, it's like. You know, there's a lot of changing things that are like different this week than they were last week and they'll be different again next week. So it's like there isn't I don't know that there's as much of like an autopilot kind of mode with my with my five year old daughter. There is like she's totally self-sufficient. But with the seven month old, we still need to like if my wife just has him Kara, for like four or five hours without my help, she like goes totally bonkers. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so I, I look, we'll see when it comes closer to true production time, you know, um, figuring out there's two big question marks for an independent filmmaker, and that is how will you pay your rent while you're not earning money to do so? And then also, in this case, like, how much we'll will your to, family hate you? Well, I think that we'll, we'll absolutely have to have some additional support. And so, you know, ideally, we're all out on location together we get an airbnb and then nanny comes and helps out but that's an additional significant amount of money on top of not you know making any (laughs) so we'll see we'll see cool well on that note if you do want to help us make a little bit of money you can go to our patreon page patreon.com slash just shoot it pod you can give a dollar four dollars ten dollars to the podcast a month and uh, that helps us keep going helps us uh pay for our editing and our the things that allow our podcast to exist even when we are off kind of working or dealing with various things barking dogs do you hear that the busier we get the more we need that uh help actually because the more we lean on our support system especially our our dear pal sarah weirda who does such a great job editing the show yeah and if you uh, give it the ten dollar level you will get a hat mailed by me and potentially packaged by my daughter with the minimal amount of uh boogers Get it done before the end of 2021, before our hat prices go up. Yeah, inflation. Sorry, folks. It's real. It's real. It's real. Um, Awesome. Okay, Well, without any further ado, and perhaps after an ad or two, let's talk to Alex Henry. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So you are a director, obviously. You just made a movie. It's just premiering in a bunch of festivals. Congratulations. And we're going to talk about that in a little while. But you're also an agency producer. And that's uh, the capacity that Matt and I both met you in. Can you tell us a little bit what an agency producer is? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, first of all, thanks for having me, guys. It's really great to talk to both of you at the same time. But I can tell you what an agency producer is in terms of, you know, kind of how they basically take the creative development that's going on in an advertising agency and look for a production partner and director. So they're in charge of overseeing sort of the budget and also making sure that, you know, we we're looking at specific types of directors based on genre, based on experience, also based on budget. And we kind of go out and get a list together and then present it to our creative team at the agency, discuss who we think would be best suited, and then kind of go and engage with the director from there moving forward. So I guess an agency producer, sort of depending on what stage they're at in their career, if you're a junior producer, you don't really have that many connections yet in the production world. Um, you know, a few years down the road, I think you get more under your belt and you're able to sort of put in a good word for people you know that would do a good job for the creative. So you're kind of like this liaison between like production world and advertisement. It's kind of like literally just now dawned on me that like there's nobody better for a director to know than like an agency producer. <laughs> like if you want to direct commercials, right? Like you're pretty instrumental in the director search. Yeah, that's definitely true. I think creatives usually have an idea of who they would love to work with. And then the agency producer kind of takes those, you know, wish lists and then filters it down to like, basically, hey, here's somebody who is equivalent maybe in talent and concept, but will come in more closer to the budget that we have. So yeah, I mean, the agency producer 
Right. So they'll say like, we want a Michelle Gondry, Catherine Bigelow type. And you're like, well, you have $200,000. So you're not going to get this. Have you met Orrin Kaplan? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. But I think the agency producer too, you know, is really clutch in helping in these days, creatives and clients, brands, whatever you want to call them, also find new talent, which obviously is an issue that a lot of brands struggle with um, in terms of, you know, diversity and gender equity. So I try to stay, you know, on top of who is doing what and who might be a good option. And then, you know, obviously there's directors reps out there who work for either in-house at a production company or have a roster of their own production company resources, whether it's, you know, directors at a production company or editors at post-production company, all the way down to VFX and audio post. So, um, you know, I think even though agency producers are really in the trenches in terms of like producing and logistics and organizing and coordinating, it's fun in the beginning because you get to use your creative brain on putting the perfect dream team together. Well, I, I was just going to say it's just so illuminating to me because no one ever really explains how all of this works. That's part of the reason we wanted the podcast is because like you kind of have to learn on the job and like pull someone aside or figure out like, oh, what, what, what is Alex's job exactly? Like, what does that mean? But I've always found I have a fondness for for agency producers because they know the tangible issues that you're dealing with right like you know what production really is like and agency why agency side that's not kind of the purview of most of them a creative director no matter how many commercials they've done they they they're not looking at like line items the same way an agency producer has and is and so like they tend to be an ally for directors to be like hey like this is unreasonable or let's figure it out together or whatever it is. They, they speak our language in a way that it can be comforting on a, on a production level specifically, you know, uh, everybody else at an agency can be great as well, but, but um, they tend to not have the practical knowledge the way sometimes I, I like to relate to people. Yeah. Like the creative director might be like, we want to, let's just shoot one of each version of th- this thing or whatever. And you can be like, uh, we don't have time to do that. It's going to cost a cool more idea, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's true. You, I think it's like a combination of being a diplomat and an educator because it's, you know, I've worked also with young creatives, older creatives, and sometimes I am just baffled by the questions that they ask because I'm assuming that they're in the position that they're in because they not only come up with ideas, but they understand how to execute them. A lot of times they just come up with ideas and they really right. aren't sure like, how to Alex, execute Alex, could them. we land a helicopter at that school? <laughs> <laughs> it's like in theory, I guess, but you know, I, and one thing I want to point out too, just to differentiate like, you know, when people are on set and you're like, who are all these people with the brand team and who's the client and who's doing what? But we also have like the account manager or we call them, you know, if you work in-house, sometimes you call them brand partners. And they're sort of the liaison between the brand or the client and the creatives. So you have these like two bastions of trying to funnel information all the time and then kind of talking. I'm always in contact 
with that person behind the scenes to kind of figure out what does the brand really want and then, you know, tell them, well, it's not possible and go back. And then the creatives are sort of in the middle. And, uh, you know, I also have to make sure I hear what the creatives want, but also understand how to explain to them that it's not possible. Sure, so, sure. Or, or even maybe like ha the ways in which it can be possible. Or like, the ways in which it can be possible. Yeah, yeah, right. Like like I think that there's a lot of, you know, like any producer, it's like kind of taking a problem and coming up with a couple different ways to solve it and then figuring out what the best way is, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. To me, the interesting balance in all of those relationships is that you get hired for a reason, right? You're like, we're going to, you know, take Alex and her team to do the campaign for this because we like their their past work. We like their pitch. We like what they say. So now we're going to trust them to do this. And then you come and you hire, you know, we like Matt and his team because we like his previous work. We like his pitch on this. But then I find like a lot of times then the client will be like, ah, we should uh we should just put make everything orange in this scene or whatever. And then the agency's like, okay, well, the client wants everything orange. And then Matt's like, well, it doesn't really make sense. And you're like, well, the client wants it. And then so Matt makes everything orange, you know, with the production designer, even though the production designer hates it. And it's like, there's this balance of at some point, like, you're hired because people trust your taste, but then they're telling you to do the thing that you like, are like really opposed to taste wise. And that that's to me like the the drama of making commercials, um, you know, and it's like it's like what you're saying about a more experienced producer and kind of reigning in creatives, but also like liaisoning with the brand people is like it's managing that like, hey, we want to do this. And either y you have the option of saying, OK, we'll do it or well, hey, this is why we don't think we should do this, um, <laughs> which is like a, a weird position to be in, you know, and you're probably or, or, or in that maybe position a lot. <laughs> Maybe like, oh, but we're really excited about this idea and infecting those other people with that excitement, you know, is maybe the positive spin on that, right? Like, I think, you know, that, that you there's the whole spectrum of like totally kowtowing to uh, a client to totally kowtowing to a creative director to, to a director. You know, there's like there's a lot of egos and opinions happening. And so like depending on the dynamics of all of the organization, like all of us can be tyrants, I guess is what I'm saying. And you're always stuck in the middle, Alex. <laughs> I'm always stuck in the middle. So I have to like early on in the game, choose my deep allegiances because <laughs> I, I need to know who's going to really get the job done and get it in a way where at least like maybe 70% of the people will be happy. Cause that's just another big takeaway. You cannot make everybody happy, you know? Um, so I think, at, you know, if you want to choose the path of least resistance, but knowing you're going to deliver what, you know, is actually going to air or, you know, or launch, I, I think it also comes down to being there on the day like you know so many decisions happen and that's when i really feel like is go time for me is when i'm actually on set and try to i was listening to one of your podcasts earlier i think it was the latest one where you guys were just talking i don't think there was a guest but sort of like who do you pay attention most to on to on set you know so i know when i'm on set i really do like to be connected to the director i like to be connected to the the line producer obviously um and then, you know, I do like to know who is running all the departments as well. Sometimes that might feel a little like over 
bearing. I don't know. No one's ever told me, but I get the sense. Maybe they might be like, God, she's so annoying. But I like to know how everything's run. And I think that's maybe the director side of me is like, I need to know how things are made. And therefore I can be 10 steps ahead of what's going to happen and see the fires coming, you know, before they get too out of control. Um, I think also like the first AD as well. It's, you know, if, if I can make friends with whoever's in that position and at least so they understand, I, I know what's going on. Cause I think there are some agency producers who haven't come up through the production ranks like I have. So they're sort of there thinking, okay, the client wants this. And then they relay that, but they don't know necessarily when to push back and when, and what implications one small decision might have on the entire day. So, yeah. And I, the the one small like the implications I think is the most important thing right because some things it's like yeah sure we can go ahead and shoot two versions and sometimes it's like well no there's a fifteen minute reset in between each time it's not as simple as just saying it twice you know and your knowledge of that I think really helps yeah not to kiss ass too much I do think like what from my experience with you what makes you a good producer is you are aware of the production stuff you know and also you seem to have a good sense of when people like on your side maybe are wasting time or our side is, are wasting time, you know, and, and so you, yeah, like when you have an agency producer that actually knows that a production designer needs to go out and buy this thing that this copywriter just randomly mentioned and the creative director is like, yeah, let's do that. Why don't we have like one of each color and see what it looks like? Like, I think a lot of agency producers will be like, so can we do that? But you'll be like, you'll be one step ahead and say, okay, do you think it's worth us sending someone out for a half an hour to target to buy three t-shirts for this, where the client already told us they're happy with this, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. So, but so I think just kind of like the million dollar question, like if I was listening to this podcast, can you take us through a scenario you have, you're working on a campaign. It's, you know, it's going to be something with cars and fashion. And you need to find a director uh, and the budget is, let's say, half a million dollars or let's say three hundred thousand dollars. What's what's your first step? How do you like make this list of directors? So my first step would be looking at the creative, not I mean, you've already explained the scenario if it's fashion and cars, but I would have to see like what how, what the deliverables are. And um, not just like, oh, it's 162nd with a 30 second cut down and two fifteens. It's like, okay, but then what do you really want? Because you're going to want bumpers. You're going to want gifts. You're going to want this whole package. So I think that's really important to like try to get that out of the client because sometimes they don't even know what they want and then sort of take that information. And then I have to kind of be an investigator and look at how many days I think it's actually will be needed to shoot this because sometimes it's like this is our budget and it's a one day shoot and then you're looking at all these things that need to be captured and you're like this is impossible we can't this there's no way we can do this in one day so then i know like okay all of a sudden my 600 let's say it's 600k uh, production budget has now have to split across two days and so you're thinking well what director could do a two-day shoot for you know you have an idea of what director's rates are going to be and then sort of but are you thinking sorry are you thinking of their rates personally or are you thinking of like can matt pull off an explosion for a hundred thousand mm -hmm. dollars like are you, are you thinking of the whole I definitely can. 
um, <laughs> production and how much that, but because I guess, and you tell us, like, I think Matt and I usually think of the director's rate. Obviously, it, you know, there's directors that work $5,000 a day and $50,000 a day and whatever. There's directors with day rates, which is one way to budget directors, but another way is like as a percentage of the budget, right? Right. Like five to 10% of the production budget. So at that point, it's less about like which director can we afford as much as which director can pull this off for the budget in the schedule, right? Or, or yeah, has I, the right aesthetic or is the right fit or can work with these type, this type of talent or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. It's good with no, cars totally, or kids if or animals. Good, if, if you have influencers or celebrity talent, if it's SAG, if it has to be a union shoot, those are things too that I have to consider kind of before I even go and start a director search or start talking to director's reps. So, so do you do um, like a DGA search differently than like a non-DGA search or do you find the director and then determine if they're DGA, you do it one way and if they're not, you do it another well, way? I, I pretty much know which like big production companies, I mean, they're all, all the top production companies, let's say the A-list, like creativity's A-list production companies will be DGA. Um, but then I feel like I have good secret resources to know that I could get like a DGA quality director who might not be part of the DGA yet, might be backdoor, might, you know, so I, I, so there's those things to factor in as well. But look for doing for the car example, like I have not shot a car commercial in probably 10 years. Um, So I wouldn't know where to start with the car commercial necessarily. But in terms of like a specific director I would have in mind, so I would probably go to the handful of production companies that I have relationships with and look at the work on you know their site and see. And then I might even reach out directly to an executive producer there who I know. But also, to be honest, like you know the teams that I've worked with you on with both of you guys on the Game Fuel spot and then also the Pepsi stuff. The those you know came through a connection that we've had at the Pepsi studio who I've, you know, just trust and I know can get things done. So to be honest, like Oren, I'd never heard of you before. Very <laughs> before offended. we just spent the whole summer together. Um, but I trusted the people telling me that you were the guy for the job. And so, you know, that's another way about it as well. Right. So is there any scenario where you like, go to Instagram or you go to YouTube or Vimeo staff picks or Sundance, you know, shorts or yeah, like so the, the South by midnight shorts block or anything or like even like I spot and start looking at other, like, I guess if I'm, if I'm a listener to this podcast and I'm trying to figure out how I can get on your radar, is mm-hmm. it really, do I have to sign up, be rep by a production company? Is that kind of the best way? No, no. I, I don't go to all those places because I just don't have time to be browsing around. Unfortunately, like I used to spend a lot of time looking at the advertising trades and staying on top of who's doing what. And it was more when I was working at production companies because we were always checking out the competition. We were seeing a lot more work. We had conversations about competitive directors all the time. So that was much more front of mind. Now I would say, you know, I used to like look on Nowness, but I, I don't even go there anymore to that site. That was nobody goes to spot. websites anymore. 
I, I know. <laughs> Instagram, um, I guess I follow certain people and I see what they post, but that doesn't mean I'm seeing new people, right? So it's like I'm seeing this same stuff depending on my algorithm. And I also don't watch that much TV. So it's kind of hard to see who's doing what. But I do subscribe to, you know, ad age and try to check and see who's trending and, you know, creativity. Um, pay attention to AICP awards and also the Can Lions and see who's winning what. So I guess, you know, that's the bar, but I wouldn't say that's the only place I, I find directors. I know that there's a lot of the sites too now, uh, Free the Bid and other sort of like diverse creative resources or emerging director resources to stay in the know. So those are good places. But for the film festivals and I'm, that's a whole different thing because I'm trying to get my own film done. Uh-huh, sure. yeah, I'm not yeah. necessarily paying attention to it. Yeah, you're and kind of you, straddling those two lines there. Do yeah. you ever call a sales rep? Yeah, absolutely. And so maybe I should explain how sales reps work a little bit um, because it can get confusing. So there's uh, territories in the United States. So you have the East Coast, you have the West Coast, and then you have Midwest. Some So basically, let's say kin production company, for example, they're based on the West Coast. So they probably have a West Coast sales rep. If they want to get business from any creative ideas that are coming out of the East Coast, that would go through their East Coast sales rep. And then same for any ideas coming out of like Chicago or Texas, you would have a Midwest sales rep, most likely based in Chicago, who would be you know, in touch with agency producers to kind of have the finger on the pulse of what's happening. And then, so if I wanted, say, for example, Goodby in San Francisco wants, I'm working for them and they want to shoot um, a spot and their creatives coming out of San Francisco, then I would get in touch with the production company. You know, if I'm looking at five different companies, I would get in touch with their reps that are based on the West Coast. So there is this territorial kind of game going on. I feel like it's shifting though, because everybody's working remotely. So it's sort of hard to determine where exactly creative ideas are coming from, because you could be a creative based in the New York office, but living your best life now in the middle of nowhere, like Mm -hmm. Montana. Yeah. Yeah, They live in Palm Springs now. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Palm Springs. So it's getting a little bit gray. But I think that is important for directors maybe that are learning about how they need to get their work out there to because they also need to be friends with their reps that you know represent them. Well, and I, I guess the rule of thumb just being regardless of where people are physically, if they report to an office that's based in one of those territories, that's where their allegiance lies, basically. So if someone yeah. works for you know, good be, but they live in Montana, there's still, you know, a West Coast right. idea, basically. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so if I, even though I'm in New York, and if I was producing for good be, then I should be reaching out to the West Coast sales reps. So it doesn't matter where I am. But sometimes it doesn't happen because I have re- most of my relationships with these sales reps are on the East Coast because this is where I live. This is where I network and go to all the parties and rub elbows when we used to do that, you know, pre-COVID. Right. Now you got to wear elbow pads. The whole thing. <laughs> exactly. But there's like a myriad of ways of discovering directors. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess it, it does sound kind of hard to get on the radar, you know, if you're not with the company. But well, it, and then, and then, then, then the next step is like somebody could be on my radar, but then I have to do a hell of a job to sell them in to the creative team. And so how do you sell a director? Like what makes a director easy for you to convince the creative team to consider? For sure. If they have work on the reel that is similar to what the creatives have come up with in their mind. And I mean, let's face it, like there's nothing new under the sun. So usually there's something on somebody's reel somewhere that is very relevant to what these creatives have come up for their, their brief. And if um, that work is like, fine but not amazing not horrible but just like okay that that's like, a good question or does that you know yeah does that help you, them we've been in situ we've both been in situations where it's like oh this is the spot but i don't love it but it's it is yeah. the thing they're looking for i have the is dog or i have i have the it, talking dog but it's not a funny talking dog is yeah it, uh, right yeah. if it's something but the that's color grade real. is like yeah. embarrassing yeah. yeah yeah exactly exactly but the performance is good but the edit it's not is not good you know I would probably then, you know, you, maybe your rep would know that and not put that on your reel, or they might send it and say, this is work that is representative of what the creative is, but it's not, you know, the highest quality or there's better things, you know, so that, that then I can take that information. And when I present it to the creative team, you know, director A has a great reel that I think, you know, matches the look and feel of what you're going for and shows experience with like performance, you know, if it's like a character driven spot. And then director B has really cool conceptual visual work that could highlight this one thing in the creative brief, but they're lacking the, you know, performance. And then director C might have everything, but it's just lackluster and doesn't seem like enough experience. I feel like, you know, a lot of, um, you know, it, it, I think now the movement is we have to give people more chances. We have to give them more opportunities. We have to look beyond what's on the reel and kind of, you know, include more people in the conversation. So that's a big push too. But I think then once the creative teams are like, okay, great, we like these three directors and we want to get on the phone with each of them and hear them talk about why they are into this spot, then that's a whole nother level of like, oh, this person was really funny and I get their jokes. Or this person seemed a little shy or preoccupied with something. Or this person was talking about an entirely different concept, not ours, you know? So then there's these things of like level of interest and, you know, just relatability, I think, that the creatives are gonna certainly look for. That's super helpful. Is there anything else that you are looking for on, on a call with directors or like any advice you would give like a director is doing their first call with an agency? Yeah, I usually would, you know, at least brief their producer and say, this is the stuff that the creatives liked about this director's reel. So he or she should speak to that and talk about that experience. Um, the directors are really looking for someone to not only enhance their idea, but come up with a technical approach sometimes, depending on what the creative is. But I think like if you can take it to a technical approach, for example, or in, on the project that you and I worked on recently, where you kind of went above and beyond. I mean, you were already going to get the job because of yeah, <laughs> circumstances, but you did go above and beyond by, you know, putting together a little VFX, you know, 
case demo to show and you know illustrate your idea that you had. And I think that was super helpful, not just for the creative team, because we already knew like we we're going to be great with you, but we did share it even with the client and kind of like, you know, hype, hype them up. I would have put makeup on if I knew it was going to the client. (laughs) (laughs) I always tell them no, but that's really interesting though, Alex, because I think, you know, in the like development world and in, in features and in pitching and stuff, I always talk about like, you know, your leave behind, like giving someone the documentation that they need to repitch your idea or, or your take to their bosses or to the other people in the room or whatever. And it's really fascinating to think about the idea that that obviously that has to happen with you guys as well. Right. So like, Are there other examples of, you know, maybe not necessarily a VFX demo video, but are there other tools that you wish you had that you could use to sell a director through? Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking about a job I did not too long ago and we were working, we were trying to choose directors and it's funny. I wanted to go with the director that had more commercial experience because I could just see from his reel and also this, we were already in the treatment phase, but we still have to like, once we get the directors engaged and do treatments, then I, I have to kind of sell on the treatment to the creatives and say, which one I like best also from a budget perspective. But anyway, I, this one particular director I thought would be the better choice because just of his, I think efficiencies. And I knew he had, um, you know, brand experience and commercial experience, but then and when the you mean efficiencies, are, like he, he wrote like in the treatment like oh i think while we're shooting this we can also shoot this and this will be like a way to or or you mean he'll edit it as well no not that way no (laughs) i think it was just like yeah from the approaches of like we could shoot it this way and this is what i've done in the past so and he was in he was not very long-winded he was like concise and to the point whereas the other director who had beautiful work and put together a thoughtful treatment was like extremely long-winded and not just in the treatment, but also on the phone. So I'm thinking, okay, we're on, cut to, we're on set, you know, and I, I'm just envisioning this like really long process to like get a soliloquy done. Exactly. So the 35 millimeter, the 27, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. it's funny. Alex, you're really, you're, you're cutting to the quick though. Cause I, I, I feel like on those calls, I'm normally quite, good to toot my own horn but because of this podcast i feel like i i know how to talk about work a lot and our episodes have been getting longer and longer (laughs) 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 so i'm gonna think about this conversation every time i'm on a call from now on (laughs) yeah and i don't think it has to be like yes no answers you know i I do think that when I just start getting a little anxious when I feel sure. like they've Red just flags. said the same idea like five different ways. Like we get it. It's a little bit of a red flag. And then sure enough, you know, like we did go with the more long-winded director who was like a super great guy. And, but on set, there were some, some like painful moments where it was like, what's going on? But that was also because of like shooting remotely too and being on zoom. And I think, you know, it's a whole nother thing we don't need to get into because we've all experienced it. But in terms of like any advice for directors, for sure, I would say, you know, be concise, but have a point of view and and hope for the best. Do you like I, something I do? I've been doing less of it, but is I, I'll just write a list of questions for that first call. 
you know, I read the treatment. Here's a bunch of questions I have for the agency. And, you know, sometimes it's a real natural thing and there's a real flow. It's like, oh, you know, I, I've done this before. This, this would be fun to do it like this. or, uh, But other times I'm just like still trying to figure out like what they're going for. And so I'll just kind of go through this list of questions. Like, are you like, let's talk about like the tone. Are you thinking like a Geico commercial or more like, you know, like a Nike spot? Like, you know, like, is it more like cool or is it more like awkwardly funny? Because they'll reference like the office and, you know, something like Red Bull. Yeah, like, there, there is that process of making sure you're on the same wavelength because it's easy to come in with a take that you know you love. But especially early on when your ideas are still sort of forming, you know, you maybe you've just seen the boards like, you know, you're still kind of wrapping your head around things. That first call, it's hard to know if you should come in with like a really strong specific take or if you should be amenable to a couple different directions and then plus it from there, you know? Right. I think, yeah, to both of your points, um, and that's a really good approach. I think it's better to ask questions and have a list because not only are you going to get the information you need to take away and then go to treatment to work, but you're just going to sound more professional because you know what you're talking about and you're going to ask these questions and they might not understand what the director production verbiage is, but they will, it's like signaling, right? That, oh, okay, this guy is asking the right questions and we should think about that. And that I didn't think, you know, even consider it this way or that way. So I, I do think that's a smart approach. It's like an interview, you know, when you, when I mean, it is an interview for you guys, you're kind of interviewing for a job. But when I think of it too, it's like, well, you, you want to make sure you want to work with that person as well. You know, I mean, not that you're going to say, oh, those guys are totally crazy, but they're offering me a million dollars to do this job, but I'm not going to take it because it sounds like a headache. But no, obviously you're going to make it work and bend over backwards. But um, I think the, yeah, the more you can show the extent of your knowledge and experience through asking those questions, the better. And I was going to, oh, one more thing that, you know, I, I try to do this. I, I, I love to protect the production company and the directors. Like I'm a big you know, mama bear, I guess you could say in that respect where I know what everybody has to go through on that side to, you know, to win a job and then cheese, we're off to the races and producing it within like 10 days. And, and a lot of the times in the projects I work on, you know, that production company is taking it through delivery. So I think sometimes the agencies do a really good job of explaining exactly what the project is. They might even have boardomatics that they're showing directors too which has gone a step further to like have tested a concept, know what they want. And I want to get your, I have a question for you. If you feel that's too prescriptive, do you like just seeing boards and loosely like etched ideas versus like, nope, this is the timing. This is what we want. And then we want you to come in and do, you know, your magic yeah. and performances. I'll say I love knowing that they know how long 30 seconds is. <laughs> truly you know like it's yeah. like oh okay we all know that this idea is gonna fit and that we're not cramming things in because i i will always do boredomatics so that i personally know how long it is and i'll also like you know read all of that end copy and make sure that like it you know and I'll, I'll point out like guys do you hear how quickly i'm reading no actor is gonna read it this fast and i you know 
sped it up or whatever. Or I know, okay, this is gonna this is perfect. So that's really nice. There is sometimes a little bit of a feeling of like, well, guys, what do you what do you need me to do exactly? You know? <laughs> right. Like so when you get especially here. when you get yeah. those those boards that are just like so decked out, they look as good as your treatment's gonna look. That it's not that I have a problem with it being prescriptive, but there isn't a ton of room for me to plus things or, or it's hard to t- to tell in what the direction they need my input, you know? Yeah. I, I, I mean, I 1 million percent agree about the 30 second thing. Um, but I find them intimidating the boardomatics, especially Matt and I, I think are a little different. I like to know like who I'm up against and who I'm bidding against. And then I'll like start looking at their work and I'll be like, Oh, they're so good. Like yeah, so yeah, yeah. amazing. They we, have that. We are pretty spot. diametric. Like, we, we agree um, with most things, but we are diametrically opposed on that. I don't want to know. I'm only competing with myself. Well, because I had, I had one pitch for this Dr. Pepper job where I pitched this idea really hard. And I basically unbeknownst to me, pitched the winning directors. Like I, I used their sample as like the North star of what this thing should be like, you know? And I've done that multiple times. I had pictures of my treatment from, you know, spots that like the people I'm bidding against have have directed and stuff. And so I, I want to not do that. And I also, I feel like I have a few strengths. And if I know that someone I'm bidding against is really, is stronger than me in one of those things, I'll try to push my mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, a, a different, different agenda, direction. Um, which, is, which is smart for sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I pitched on this chase campaign that was like a pretty big campaign that I really wanted to get. And they was uh, at the time and ended up not starring her but it was um leslie leslie jones from snl and uh they had boardomatics they had like her drawn in there they had everything they timed it tested it it was like in when color. they photoshop the talent in that yeah a, you're like oh boy it was already at locate it was a look you know they had it was going to shoot at lax and all these locations they already knew the locations and so to me it's like sure i can say talk about camera moves or lighting or something but I think in something like that, I have to talk. I talk about like working with, you know, like comedy talent, like celebrity comedians and my experience and and how and the prep work I like to do before we get to set to make sure we're expressing their personality on camera, you know, those types of things. And so I try to I try to and I do this in the in the agency call, too, is I try to see like what piece they feel like they're coming to the director for. Because if they already know the art, they have an art director that has like a color palette chosen already and framing and all these things, then I want to try to bring something. So, that, that, but it, but in general, I prefer if it's just boards and not boardomatics because at least I have something to talk about, even if they already have the same idea, you know. And if they have a different idea, I find that it's usually okay. Like they will be. Uh, like, great, we love the way you're thinking, but we're going to do it this way. But we, but it, but it was nice to see how you would approach it. You know, like I don't see it as a negative to pitch something different than the, what they were thinking. So it's a long answer, but I, I'm not a huge fan of the boardomatics from the agency. <laughs> I, you know, it's funny. Do you ever send boardomatics, or Alex, have you ever seen boardomatics in a pitch doc document? I, on, I only do them once I've won the job, typically. No. Oh yeah. Only, only. And once the job's been done one, but I, my thing is that a couple of different teams that I work with, like creatives, they will do boardomatics and go and get them tested before 
they start doing a director search. So I haven't ever shared those out. Well, I'm also just not at that stage yet in in the development process, but I was curious because it just, you know, people, just like a storyboard too, even like clients can get so attached to specific things. And then, you know, it's basically a somewhat of a representation of what you're going to shoot your camera angle, your, you know, camera length, but, or focal length, but it's not exactly going to look like that. You know, it's just, there's so many things that can change. And sometimes that's hard to educate the brand that, you know, this is the overall general approach, but you know, it's going to look a little different. Yeah. Or sometimes in the board of medics, they'll do like impossible things like that in real life, you could never do in the amount of time. Like they'll have someone drive from here to here, get out of the car and walk through the door. And you're like, well, them getting out of the car is going to take like five seconds, you know how? Yeah. So we can jump cut or we can do this or that. But yeah, I would also I do like animal work sometimes. Like I have a you, Alex, you probably don't know this, but I have a secret like cat and dog reel. Um, that I oh, kind no. of fell into. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because um, uh, I did these things with College Humor back in the day. Um, but anyway, like you would, we would board things and the board artist would like kind of like put little facial expressions on the cat sometimes. He would like, like if they were supposed to be confused or whatever, he would sell, sell the joke a little bit. And I would constantly be like, no, you there. A kitten is, is a blank stare. So yeah. I want them to understand that this joke isn't going to read and you get, making a cat act isn't going to help <laughs> that. <laughs> it's like, I wish I could talk a cat into like raising an eyebrow the way you drew it. But <laughs> yeah. Wait, who's that famous cat? Grumpy cat. Yeah. Grumpy, grumpy cat. cat. Come on. Sure. Not a blank yeah, make him look like grumpy cat. Yeah. Yeah. They oh, are. my goodness. Well, my last question, I know we're. We're talking about this for a while, and I want to get to your movie. My my last question about your experience with other directors is on set. What, uh, like, I guess any advice you have for, again, like new directors that are directing commercials? What do you like that directors do on set and don't like, especially in terms of, like, their relationship, how they're interacting with you and the agency? So I was thinking about a lot of the directors I've worked with earlier today, just to, like, make sure I could have examples of a question that might be similar to that. But, you know, I've definitely had some horror stories with directors and those directors are the ones that seem to delegate everything to all of their, their keys and don't take accountability or responsibility for anything. And I haven't come across tons of directors like that, but I did do a project overseas Uh, I think it was three or four years ago. And the directors basically were banking on this amazing DP that they booked and convinced to do the job. And they also were banking on this amazing stylist to style the celebrities that we were working with. And I think that when you put all of the pressure or, or the, you know, decision-making on those types of people, you're not really directing anymore because you lose your own point of view. And I think that it becomes so frustrating because when you come down to it and you're shooting and you're trying to get a shot and things are taking longer than possible. And, you know, I'm talking to the director, well, Hey, you know, do you think it's time to move on? Did we get it? And they've totally lost context and they're, 
they're just saying, well, you know, our DP is trying something or doing something or, or you know, they blame it on other people. They and abdicate that, responsibility. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yes, exactly. And it's not only just to, you know, the stylist and the DP in that situation. It was also to the line producer. It was also, it was always somebody else's fault and some, you know, but not their own. And that just like boils my blood. Like I hate when people can't take accountability. That's funny because I didn't realize it could not be our fault. I thought everything was our fault. <laughs> <laughs> you need to find, yeah. Well, I told right you not to cast her. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, I think that also, I don't know, can, can also, it just comes down to the pre-production. I think, um, you know, having a director present through the pre-production to production, and then if they're going to be involved with post, or at least just getting their notes to the editor is really important. And so I appreciate team players. I know directors are booked on other jobs sometimes when they're still pitching, and they're also in pre-production for my job. So I totally understand that. And, you know, the more communication, the better, because then I'm not left in the dark to then go, you know, communicate back to my team what's going on or why we haven't received, you know, certain things to review ahead of the pre-production, yada, yada, yada. But um, the things that, yeah, directors that are, that are great to work with do do, I think just, you know, show up, are present, try to stay level-headed. And if they can't make it, it, you know, they, they let everybody know and, and that's fine. And, you know, there's always a lot of talented people. It's, it isn't just the director, but I think, you know, the director steers the ship. And so if it's, if it's going awry, then yeah, it's kind of the director's fault at the end of the day. And what about like pushing, like, what about the notes from the client to the agency, to the director? Like, do you, are there directors that are like, yeah, we'll do a version like that. And directors are like, no, that's dumb. I'm not doing that. Yeah, I I think so. I think, I mean, yes, there are for sure. I've definitely had pushback from directors and totally valid. Like we don't have time. We got what we need. We're moving on. And then sometimes there are directors who probably are a little bit more or less experienced who will try to get everything in that the that the client wants. So I again try to be the diplomat because I have been on set enough to understand like we're not going to get that shot. You've got to just like move on, get you know, knowing that it was either an extra an extra performance and a safety take, what have you. One thing that not that I hate about myself, but I I like get annoyed with myself is that I am such like a brand stickler now that I can like see something wrong from like 10 miles away that has to do with the, with the particular brand that I've been working a lot with. And so I try to, you know, get to that before the brand sees that. And sometimes, you know, and obviously though you're, you guys are directors working with different clients all the time. You don't know the brand guidelines. I mean, at the end of the job, you probably are very well versed in the brand guidelines, but you know, going into it, you're like, how could I even know that when I'm overseeing like 10,000 other things? So I definitely try to like pay attention to those, those aspects. And so that does it. So that takes something off your plate. Well, and so also to, to me, it's just like communicating that as efficiently as possible. Like if, for instance, there was a certain 
color that you weren't allowed to have in a commercial spot or something like that. You know, if you're if you spent, you know, millions, maybe even billions of dollars over the last few decades teaching an audience to associate a certain color palette with your product. And then there's a competitor, let's say, that has a similar sort of campaign, but with a different color. That's all fine. We get that. Let's just like get rid of the the thing as soon as possible. If you see it, let's let's get it. Because the last thing we want is to be in the edit and to get a note back like, oh, sorry, you know, we're not allowed to use this because of this thing that we saw too late. You know, right. Let, let's know, jump on the grenade. Right. Yeah, yeah right. totally. The worst is when you get uh, some feedback from the agency and it's like they don't like the wheelbarrow. They don't like this garbage pail. They don't like this shirt. They don't like this hat. And you're like, well, I like it. Can we talk about it? Like, nope, they just said no. And you never hear why. And you're like trying to figure out how to get this because you love them for some reason. And then finally, like halfway through the day, they're like, yeah, that's Coca-Cola's color or whatever. You're like, oh, if you if I would have known that from the beginning, <laughs> I would have just yeah, not. Just I had that with like that. Yes. Some paint brand and we had like some orange stuff in and they kept telling us to pull it down. And I thought it looked so good. I couldn't figure out why. And then at some point, like three quarters, there was like a two, three day shooting on the second day. They're like, yeah, you know, orange is like Home Depot colors and we don't sell our product at Home Depot. So we don't want it to feel like Home Depot. Like a Home Depot thing. Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. I did not know that. <laughs> oh, I can say, but that's like kind of on my team's fault too, right? If I'm the agency producer and I have a creative team and we've gone through a whole pre-pro and we've looked at all of the props and we've looked at the set dressing, we've looked at the wardrobe and then we get on set and the client's like, I don't like that. So that's my job to step in and say, well, you approved it. So, you know, mm-hmm. just so you oh know, we God. have to go and change it. Well, we, you, know, you approved so it, Alex. Say it again. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh yeah. my God. You approved oh, Matt. I don't know why he's doing a British accent this whole time, but you approved him. Oh, um, <laughs> well, thank you so much for all the feedback. I mean, it's really, you know, I, I think yeah, we could talk for we know all this stuff peripherally, but it's great to hear it from you directly. Uh, but yeah, let's, I hope it was helpful. For sure. Listeners. Let's pivot real quick up to your documentary that is, you know, playing festivals right now. And how, how long did you work on it? So I started this documentary as a photography project back in 2012. So it's almost officially 10 years, which... People tell me, <laughs> oh, you're making a film, a documentary film. It's going to take you 10 years. And I was it's like, gonna t- yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. So yeah. I'm they, almost that's right on what the money. They, people say that all the time, and it's so annoying. And then also kind and of just true. Yeah. true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what is, I, what's it called and what's it about? Yeah. So the documentary is called Street Heroines, and it's about the courage and creativity of female graffiti and street artists from around the world. And we follow three protagonists, one from New York City, one from Mexico City, and one from Sao Paulo, Brazil, sort of like the three major financial capitals of the Americas. And, you know, explore the underbelly of the cities and look at that genre through the female lens. And um, it's, yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's not just those three protagonists. We also have, you know, supporting characters, including Lady Pink, who's known as the first female of graffiti even though she'll be the first one to say she wasn't the first, you know, graffiti, female graffiti writer, but she did start out in the early 80s in in New York City and kind of paved the way and was the pioneer for all of these other women to be a part of the movement, which is now, you know, it's not very underground anymore. It's really gone in so many different directions. And 
they they like to say it's the biggest art movement the world has ever seen, which I kind of think is true if you you know want to say the genre of urban yeah. art. And they invented like uh, NFTs, right? Um, yeah, street artists did. Yeah, I, 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 they they were at the forefront of NFTs and. I feel like bank, like a Banksy back in the day was like today's NFT, right? And like, there's something about. Do you just mean art? Is that what you mean? Like an original <laughs> just, piece of just art, not digital art, like physical art. <laughs> yeah, no, like yeah. that. You, no, I get. Yeah, I guess you're right. It, it's, you a, know, it's a very loose comparison, but the idea that like art doesn't have to be just this like painting that's hanging on the wall, uh-huh, but it, sure. but even like. Um, if you had a photograph of like your building with like a Banksy on it, like could right. could represent well, art in a way. Not to go down a d- down a dumb pathway here, but just to to bust you a little bit, Oren, isn't an NFT literally taking something uh, amorphous and literally allowing you to put it on your wall? Like, isn't it the opposite of like art for everyone? It's like, no, now I own this thing, and I can I can prove that I own it and hang it up on my wall, right? No, I don't think the physic like, I know a lot of people like that are minting make NFTs, tokens, like yeah, make, minting, yeah, yeah. make physical yeah, yeah. things that you can have. Um, but I don't think that's the idea. I think the idea of like art being... Oh, owning re- art is the opposite of street art, I feel like. <laughs> no, but street well. artists need people to own the art. So sure, that's true. Yeah, yeah, there you go. But it's funny. I'm, it's I'm like, just giving you a hard time. More it's like that Banksy, you know, the person that bought the Banksy that like self-destructed, they still, there's still <laughs> some value. They, there's like almost more value in that because it was like this. Yeah, well, I don't know. You're commodifying it, I guess. I don't know. You're commodifying like the idea more than the actual product i don't know sure yeah yeah i see i there's there's a philosophical i'm i'm being a cynic about it and yeah no i mean i'm also but that's not important randomly (laughs) let's talk about but you know i do need to make some nfts for street heroines i mean actually a few years ago when i was trying to get the project funded um i did do a kickstarter so we got a chunk of change and then that was in 2016 and we went back to sort of the places i've been going and shooting by myself with my camera, which then I started, you know, filming on a DSLR and then slowly bought little equipment, a microphone and tripod and all my little documentary kit basically. And then we got, did you have, sorry to interrupt, but did you have like an outline for like a a beginning, middle and end, like some, some structure to the documentary in the beginning? No, like all things in my life, I've done it backwards. I literally have done everything backwards. Like I started in production and audio post-production. It's like the last thing you can do. And then I've like worked my way up to work brand side in, in production. No, I, I did not have an outline. I didn't know how to make a documentary. I just thought it was like going out and shooting and filming cool interviews and beautiful, you know, scenery and crazy architecture and graffiti. And then when the time came that I decided to take these little vignettes, I had been editing myself and teaching myself how to edit on Premiere. I was like, oh, I'm going to, you know, make a feature film out of this and I'm going to cut a trailer and I'm going to get some money. And, you know, there was really no outline. It was more based on the theme of what I had captured, a common theme of what I captured from these interviews where it was like, 
you know, there aren't that many women out here doing this, but we want representation. We need to create our own space because nobody's going to do it for us. And so I just really was attracted to their entrepreneurial spirit, which I felt like I kind of had in myself as like a female filmmaker trying to, you know, navigate that world coming from major production companies supporting, you know, like award-winning directors. And then I had this crazy idea where I was like, oh, I can go do that, you know? But um, I, I, I would do it all different now. I would definitely have an outline. Um, you know, I'd research my topic. I would have an outline. I would know who I want to talk to and who I could get access to. Um, those are definitely big lessons learned. But I probably, you know, I, I, this journey has been amazing for the past 10 years. You know, I've gone all over the world. I've met incredible people. And I really feel like I just want to promote their amazing art and what they're doing and their stories and messages. So, you know, I think also there's something really interesting, especially when it comes to documentary of like, there's a lot of self teaching that happens, you know? And I think that it's a, it's a medium that maybe has a little bit more room for that and you can kind of do it in slow motion and it's benefited by it taking time and letting like people's stories evolve and stuff. And so, you know, it's also one of those things where if you knew everything about how hard it is to make a feature, you probably <laughs> wouldn't have started. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. And so I think there's maybe a gift in just kind of going for it and learning as you go on, on something like that in particular. I agree for sure. hundred percent. I mean, there definitely were trying moments. I feel like, you know, you get to a point though, where there's no return. You've committed, you have this idea, you did a Kickstarter, you all these sure. people incentives. Yeah, yeah. Once like, all your friends oh and God. family are like, when's the movie coming out? <laughs> You're like, hey, soon, soon, <laughs> yeah. grandma. Yeah. And then it's like, where's my t-shirt? <laughs> yeah. I never got the poster. Yeah. That, like, that's oh. a real I learned lesson. one thing from this podcast. <laughs> No t-shirts, no posters on your crowdfunding, truly. No incentives. Yeah. You are going to spend so much money on poster tubes and shipping. You're going to be so yeah. mad at yourself. Oh, God. I know. I went through it, and then I like gave up a couple of years ago and was like, I just got to finish the film, and then I'll go back and get everybody their stuff. But yeah, it's been, you know, in a, in a way, the pressure's been good, though. You know, they pushed me to to get it done and get it finished, like, any which way. And when I would have a little chunk of money, I would be able to bring my editor back on. And when I didn't have money, I would be editing it and recutting it. And, you know, I finally got to a point where I was like, I can do this. I know the story I want to tell. I have some story here. But you know, one thing was that I got to a point where maybe this was going to be better as a series instead of a feature. And then you're like, well, what's better to market, you know? And then I'm like, don't get ahead of myself. I just have to finish it and then take it to market. So that's been a bit of a back and forth, but I really want to actually use this feature length documentary as a platform to then be able to pitch my idea of doing what take I'm calling elsewhere. street heroines 2.0. Yeah. Sure. And take it elsewhere and, and do like a, a six episode series in other cities. So and, you know, that's sort of what I realized, too, when people ask you about your project, they always want to know what's coming next. So it's like, OK, yeah, yeah, great. You've done this movie now, but what are you doing next? And like, Alex, oh. that's such a good pitch, though. I hadn't thought about, like, doing like a travelogue, almost like a travel show, but through the lens of street art around the world. So smart. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. That's, and you kind of can pitch. learn, especially female street artists, kind of like. It's obviously about female street artists and their relationships to street art, but also probably in every country, 
sure yeah. like their relationship gender politics society. Yeah. Society. yeah 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 all the cultural stuff that's so good yeah that's really yeah. great um, that's no for a, sure such, I, a, such an awesome pitch i've you know saw it as like yeah it's sort of like uh parts unknown you know meets mm-hmm. street art so you kind yeah. of like replace mm-hmm. the food connection but with the farts art but unknown. you're still going farts unknown. <laughs> i mean sign yeah. me arts and yeah. Arts unknown. Yeah. So, uh, crossing my fingers, twenty twenty two. You know, the world will open up a little bit more, and we can I, go yeah. capture it. I'm yeah. ready. Well, I mean, two of uh, our like two recent documentary directors that I can think of that have been on the podcast: Ben Berman with the amazing Jonathan documentary, and um, Luke with uh, Luke Corum with uh, Delt documentary, which is about a blind magician, close up magician. Neither one of them knew what their story was. They just knew they had an interesting personality, you know, and they went and started filming and they, and things happened, you know, and I think as hard and intimidating and kind of silly as it seems like to not know where you're going, it kind of almost seems like what you're saying. Like, I just was really into this world, really into these people and just start filming them and see what happens if you're, especially if you're not in a crazy hurry. Right. Um, if you're not making a show for Showtime or something, right? Then yeah, it's not it's not a bad way to make a documentary. I mean, and in parallel, also like you know, I've been working my full time job nine to five. I did do a, a documentary series for Gatorade a couple of years ago that took me around the world, and I got to work with these awesome um, documentary filmmakers called the Zimbalist Brothers. And they do stuff for Netflix, they do stuff for HBO, and they win sports Emmys. And um, that was just a rad experience to see how fast you could make a documentary when you have the budget. And mm-hmm. you've like, mm-hmm. you know, you you know the stories and you just go out and do it. So sure. it's like all the research, cool. you just book everything. You're like, oh, we shot a documentary in three days and it's an, uh, an episode <laughs> of television now. Yeah. yeah. But it's a different type of documentary. Like Luke Corum, who made Delt versus his other show, um, his Showtime show. Action. Action. It's it's different. And even like making a murderer, like the jinx, like you look at the first season and it's like so... Like, like it's uncovering, it's like peeling and layers away of an onion. Yeah, yeah. And then you see like the second, like when there's more of an agenda and a schedule, and you're like, yeah, it's it's good. Clearly, they had more money. There's a more, way more right. drone shots. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's the thing. The drone <laughs> shots, damn it! Yeah. I could do it over. But, that drone operator. But you yeah, kind yeah. of lose um, a little. You bit know, of the Orin has magic. a drone, Alex. You let him know. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Well, you'll be my drone. You, man you uh, distract the uh, <laughs> fire marshal, and I'll that's ask, just ask for my license, and I will fly the drone. Well, so tell us. So it premiered already, right? What's the? It, yeah. So it what's did. Happening it, with it? We premiered it at an independent festival in Bogota, Colombia, back in June, which was pretty wild because there were a lot of protests happening in Bogota during that yeah. time. Like, Against your movie? Like, they were like, no street heroines They're like, here. we like blank walls They're only. like, wait, yeah. we came for the heroine. <laughs> yeah. What is this? Girls painting? Um, no, but they did it outdoors and they actually, it's kind of like this underground independent festival that found us and said, can we show your film? Because we, you know, we support urban artists, street artists. And it's a really important time in Bogota, in Colombia right now, because of all these protests going We're on. Gonna illegally project it on a wall. And they did. They, well, they basically, there's this monument of the heroes and it's like a really historic meeting place for like the beginning of the protests. And it, it's a 
monument of Simon Bolivar, like the conquistador, and they've totally painted and tagged all over it. And so <laughs> they wanted to show the film there. And so they set up a screen and they, that's where the premiere was. So it was pretty wild and, and cool. And actually my graphics artist is from Bogota. So he went there and got to like do a little live IG action for us. So that was, that was cool. And then um, now we're starting to do the North American festivals. So Tomorrow or the 16th, which is actually tomorrow my time now, um, we'll be at the Montana International Festival, which is up in Billings, Montana. Then we're going to the Portland Film Festival in Portland, Oregon in October. Just found out yesterday that we're in the Santa Fe Independent Film Festival, which is cool. Um, and I'm a New Mexican, so that's like where all my family is so that'll be really nice that we can be together that's great oh man a hometown festival that's awesome and then after that we're in the bushwick festival so it's like both my hometowns like santa fe and bushwick so and then we're in a barcelona contemporary documentary festival in november so good news you know we, there's some others that we've applied to that we haven't got in but we feel like you know we're, we're on a roll and and are you I going to the festival um, I'm going to go to Portland. I'm going to go to Santa Fe and then I'll be in Bushwick. Um, and then I'm, I don't know about Barcelona. It's going to be in their virtual platform, but we, but I am talking to a brand in Barcelona that is a spray can brand and they're interested in helping us do some marketing. So that's like, you know, it's funny because I have all this brand experience with where I currently freelance, but it's hard when you're trying to apply it to your own project because I know all the brands speak, but sometimes like you need somebody else to be your pitch man. Sure. You know? Yeah. Oh, yeah, did yeah. you see the uh, um, Bob Ross documentary? No, but I, I, I heard the interview with Melissa McCarthy and her husband, who I guess are executive producers of it. And it's controversial though, right? Because were people trying to scam him? Yeah. Well, so what's interesting is like his whole brand started out to sell paint. Um, oh. It's like buy Bob Ross brushes and buy Bob Ross paints and buy Bob Ross, you know, and at the beginning uh -huh. of his show, he'd be like, we're using these seven colors. You should go out and buy them. And they're like the Bob Ross brand. But he doesn't he didn't own the Bob Ross brand. There was this these people that kind of groomed him to sell. They, they built a business around him because they knew he was this like super talented, engaging artist. So the controversy is about like who owns the Bob Ross and was he being exploited or not? Um, Interesting because now he's appearing in like all sorts of stuff. Like Mountain Dew did a Bob Ross. Yeah. But you know, he passed away, right? Yeah. 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 And so not um, he, but his estate. So, but sure. who controls the oh. estate? Uh, well, I think that's what the controversy is about. Mm. There's also, uh, do they touch on like all of the paintings that he did or like in a warehouse somewhere? They like, didn't really like, talk oh, about really? that so much. Yeah, I read an article about it a few years ago that, like, yeah, they're like, what do we do with all of these Bob Ross paintings? But like, the literally a warehouse full of them. Well, the problem <laughs> with the Bob Ross paintings, I think they actually are worth money if they're signed by Bob Ross, but there's only one person in the world that can officially say, like, look at a painting and know whether it's, like, a real Bob Ross or not. Authenticate uh, it. And she's this woman that owns the, uh, the rights to everything so. yeah the authenticator but everyone there's a million copies of each painting because he literally does a tutorial <laughs> on exactly how to draw the how to paint the painting so um it's like yeah it, it's it's interesting but it did make me think about your documentary and like is there a a brand 
tie in, like a paint tie in. Is there, especially with your other background, like, is there a way to make to, to well, turn I it into a business? Totally. And I'm, I'm trying to like get them to sponsor a tour so we can take, you know, the film to all the cities that we shot in and, and they can sponsor it. The only problem is like in my poster, like my key art that I've been using for it is like the competitive spray can. So they're like, we could do, we could do, we could do it, but you're just going to have to change, you know, your right. whole sure. branding. <laughs> I'm sure the like crime of it all also is like, <laughs> yeah, a no. sticky, sticky point. It, yeah, one hundred percent. So we'll see. We'll see. But there's I legal, you know, spray painting as well that happens. Mm-hmm. All the yeah, time. like there, like yeah. lots, of, all sorts of legal walls in the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. a lot of these street artists who do things illegally also have a studio practice, or they're being commissioned for murals, and they're getting, you know, influencer deals and things like that. Which, in the beginning, I kind of thought was like a sellout, but. I'm also like, well, if the guys are getting these big deals, why You're can't like, the you sell out so. now? Pepsi blue only, please, over there. I know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, um, yeah, I mean, but your documentary, like, part of the charm is the like that the subversive culture, right? Yeah, totally, and. That's one thing too, where people were always like, well, why don't you take it to this brand or that brand? But honestly, as soon, this is an independent project. So I felt that it would actually become tainted if some sort of brand did want to dump, you know, money into it or be in a partnership. I'm okay if they want to help market it, you know, throw an event and sponsor it. You know, if you like an alcohol brand or or a paint brand, um, something that does right. seem maybe more like aligned, a bail bond company. A bail bond, yeah, <laughs> will get you out of jail when you're arrested. Um, but you know, I, I guess it has to be the right fit. But back to like street heroines 2.0, I think for sure, you know, if a brand wanted to come on and sponsor that, and then it becomes branded content, that could be, you know, yeah, to deal. So yeah. That's cool. Awesome. That's cool marketing. Illegal, like illegal logos spray painted all over the world. There you go. Alex, where can listeners go to check out if they want to see your movie, where if they want to see Street Heroines, is there a place they can go to keep tabs on when it's coming to their town? Absolutely. You can go to our website, which is streetheroinesfilm.com. And then we also have our Instagram, which is our handle is streetheroines. So those two resources, I think, are the most up-to-date places. And if you go to the website, you can sign up to be on the newsletter and you can see our, our list of screenings coming to a city near you, hopefully. Awesome. Well, Alex, uh, this was so great. Um, do you have a few more minutes to hang out and endorse with us? Yeah, absolutely. Unpaid endorsements. I'm going to double down on a previous endorsement that everyone already knows, but I feel like... I feel like everyone knows that this show is good, but not that many people have watched it. And it's it's Dave. Uh, I just finished the second season. I just love it so much. I love it almost as much as my wife hates it. But it's just, have you seen it, Alex? Uh, yes, I saw one episode. And I've heard you talk about this show before and endorse it. And I was starting to cringe because I don't like it either. So I have a yes. wife, but no, we tell me, Tell me why. I just don't see the purpose of having a show like this in the world. Like why do we need another, like, you know, 
dude, pathetic dude trying to be cool and getting into like stupid situations and acting like an idiot. And I don't know. It just felt like a waste of time for me. But That's it's hard. Exactly. I have some girlfriends who love it, but I'm like, you guys, I can't. I can't my, yeah, my wife is like, what do you like about this show? And I'm like, I feel like it's a show about me. <laughs> no. Uh, Finally, my story is being told. Yeah, I guess <laughs> it's funny because everything you say is totally true. It's about this pathetic guy that's like, thinks he's great. And, you know, like you can see, look at Hello Ladies or you could look at Curb Your Enthusiasm, whatever, like a million other things, The Office, like that have kind of done different versions of this. But to me, like what makes this one good is the, is just the nuance and of like the specificity of, of the topics. Like, so there's an episode in the second season that actually Tony Ascenda, a friend and previous guest directed uh, about Dave's, before he was a rapper, he worked in advertising and he's a copywriter teaming up with an art director and they're trying to do this Mountain Dew pitch actually. And it's, you know, there's drama. Like they they pull an all-nighter trying to come up with these ideas. It's going to be their first chance, like opportunity to pitch on a broadcast spot. Until now, they've only done billboards. And then the morning of like after their all-nighter, the creative director comes and he's like, oh, by the way, the, the other team that was originally going to pitch on it is still going to pitch on it. They We thought they weren't, they had nothing prepared. So don't worry about even coming to the meeting. And it's like, like that specific thing, I feel, even though that's specifically has never happened to me, I, I feel that pain. I've been in those situations where you work so hard to show someone something and then it's like, oh, sorry, the client, we thought the client was into this idea, but they they're not. They, they sent us the wrong email, you know, and it's like, like what other show is about doing all this work for nothing, you know? <laughs> uh, so I don't know. I, I guess I, I just feel like I can relate to this show. And I think our listeners, you know, you might, you might hate the character. Like, I don't think the character is supposed to be liked, right. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, yeah. The show yeah. knows that he's a bit of a monster, right? Yeah. Yeah. But the world to me is interesting and, what, did you just watch the first episode of the first season? I just watched the first episode of the first season. And I think it's the one where they like he gets his first gig booked to perform at the school. But then Macklemore actually does show up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah like, maybe every episode is the same now that you, see, yeah, yeah. Now that you, you know. I, I would say that maybe it kind of uh, it, it sort of evolves a little bit. The idea gets a little bit more uh deep it gets deeper basically yeah well did you want did you like high maintenance um i didn't watch all of high maintenance but i did like the couple episodes i watched god i'm sounding like a a no i mean i i don't know about high maintenance i i do see dave appeals to a certain like like there it, it is like about pathetic talk like toxic masculinity in a way that i could see maybe appeals to certain people more than others you know but I don't know. I just think there's like this insight that I connect with. Um, and the second season, Ben Sinclair, who it plays the guy in High Maintenance and direct him and his wife kind of created the show and directed a lot of episodes. He is, a, I think, a producer and like a director in the second season. And it just kind of brings it to a new plane of just episode structure. You've never seen shows like this like what girls did i thought too you know when they had that episode of lena dunham and patrick wilson 
playing ping pong naked in a house like all weekend or whatever. It's like you just never seen that on TV before. And I think it has a certain quality to it, which is like the exact opposite reaction of what you had to it, which is like, I've seen this a million times. I'm turning it off, which actually I started watching the other two, which is Matt recommended last week. And that's my impression of that. Like, I, it's great. It's like Girls 5 Eva too. It's also great. But like, I could just stop watching it and not care. And, when, and never care. Not yeah. care. Not know how it ends yeah. and not ever care about how it ends. Yeah. yeah. So anyhow, well, Larry Long. Different strokes, <laughs> I suppose, is what we're saying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Alex, what you got? So my unpaid endorsement is a musician who I was just turned on to thanks to a friend who lives in Los Angeles. And you may have actually heard of him before or heard his falsetto before, but he's making a comeback. His name's Eddie Chacon. And he was a one hit wonder from the early 1990s with the song, it was Charles and Eddie, and they had the famous song, Would I Lie? Would I lie to you? Oh, yeah. (laughs) So so Eddie of Charles and Eddie now has his own album out, and it's called Pleasure, Joy, and Happiness. And I actually just saw him perform last night in New York City at Le Poisson Rouge, and it was amazing. And really magical, and I like a good comeback story. So Eddie Chacon for the win. Check him out. Um, he is now performing with his producing partner, who's this musician named John Kirby, who I'm also just finding out about, but has produced a lot for Solange and Frank Ocean. So it's kind of in that realm and that vibe. So, and I just, uh, yeah. Yeah, and Chacon is C-H-A-C-O-N. Eddie exactly. Yeah. Awesome. Wow. That's um, an A-plus endorsement. Look at that, Alex. Well, so my unpaid endorsement, inspired by our conversations, I got two. Um, one is a short film called The Pitch by Eno Friedman Broadman. And it is a, basically a dramatization of the twists and turns of a agency call. Um, so I, it's kind of perfect for... For this, you hear the voiceover of two different, um, like a director and a, and a creative director on the phone, kind of talking through this idea. And it kind of plays on all the tropes of like the director just being like, oh, man, I'm so stoked about this. This really is right up my alley because I really personally connect to like Cheetos or whatever the thing is that they're talking yeah. about. It's definitely nuggets. it's chicken nuggets. One of those just things like, oh. like if you work in commercials, you're bummed so you didn't make this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and like if you showed it to your friends who don't make commercials, they'd be like, is that what it's like? I guess. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> so the pitch awesome. by Eno Friedman Broadman. And then uh, the other one is a little easier to wrap your head around. Um, have you all watched Stanley Tucci Searching for Italy on HBO? Not yet. I've seen promos of it. It, you know, uh, it's genuinely exactly as charming as you're hoping it's going to be. It's just it's Stanley Tucci is like suave and smart and he eats a lot of great pasta. There's like a decent amount of like um, history and like cultural understanding. And they kind of, again, try to frame like the nature of the food that they're eating and how it has a broader gives you a broader understanding of the place that they're in and, and uh, is really quite wonderful and it's shot super well. And, um, you know, uh, the only way to improve that show is if it were about female uh, street artists, street <laughs> artists. 
like to eat around the world. You love those right? types yeah. of shows, man. I do like, love uh, those types of shows. What's the Everybody Loves Raymond guy? Uh, everybody Feeds Phil. I, yeah. I do like that show. It's I, I kind Phil. of... To me, it's like... Again, I've seen I've seen those that show so many times. I mean, I know like Stanley Tucci, but you have definitely seen this show before. If you're like, ah, dang, it would be nice to go back to Italy, but uh, there's a pandemic going on right now, right? It maybe scratches that so itch for you. Gets the wanderlust. Matt and I yeah, went to Italy together once. That's oh, true. That's Not so that sweet. long ago. Yeah, um, yeah, it was fun. And they go yeah. to uh, to the Tuscan countryside. They go to Florence. It's great. Oh, yeah, it's amazing. I lived in. Bologna, Italy. Oh, um, they, for a year. Yeah. Stanley goes Emilio to Bologna Romagna. as well. Yeah, of course you have to. O L O G N A. Yeah, it's like how we say baloney in America, but it's Bologna. Yeah. No, we were um, sponsored by Oscar Mayer, so yeah, yeah. Every, every time I say that, we get ten bucks. <laughs> so, Alex, are you on Instagram or anything? Should people follow you? Yeah, how can people keep track of what's going on in the world of? Oh Alex? yeah, um, yeah, I have my own personal instagram it is a l e j c a l i it's ali cali which is basically my uh email handle for the past 20 million years um and you can yeah follow me there ali cali cool as i go through the world hopefully shooting more content whether producing or directing it yeah yeah wonderful yeah well you can if you have any questions about anything that alex has said any feedback any thoughts if you love eddie chacon too email us at just shoot it pod at gmail.com um you can see everything we've talked about here on our website potentially just shoot it pod.com um and we'd love it if you follow us on all social media also just shoot it pod you can follow me on twitter i'm at smitey pileg or on instagram at O Kaplan. And I'm at Mr. Matt Enlow across all social media. This episode was edited by our dear pal, Sarah Weirda. And you're listening to uh, the artist Jazar provided by the Free Music Archive. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.